This episode contains descriptions of sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this season, we are discussing the Bosnian War of the 1990s. This is episode 7-10, Bosnia and the Croats. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. As the violence intensifies, the United Nations enacts an arms embargo on Yugoslavia. The Serbs capture Vukovar and now control a third of Croatia. Bosnia votes for independence while the Bosnian Serbs vote to remain part of Yugoslavia. The Bosnian War begins with the ethnic cleansing of Bijeljina and Kuprish. And with that, let's discuss the escalation of the war in Bosnia. Bosnia and Herzegovina As mentioned in episode 5 of this series, the word Bosnia most likely comes from the Bosna River. The word Herzegovina is believed to come from Herzog, the Germanic word for duke. Herzegovina would therefore mean the duke's land. It is not exactly clear where Bosnia ends and Herzegovina begins. Generally, it's understood that most of the country is Bosnia and the southern 20% is Herzegovina. Some have also suggested that Herzegovina begins south of Ivan Planina, a mountain in central Bosnia. Speaking of mountains, Bosnia and Herzegovina has a lot of them. The tallest mountain in Bosnia is Maglic, which sits on its eastern border with Montenegro. Maglic is a stony, craggy mountain with very little vegetation. However, most of the mountains in Bosnia and Herzegovina are covered in dense forests. In fact, nearly half of Bosnia and Herzegovina is covered in forests. Seven major rivers course through Bosnia, the longest one being its namesake, the Bosna River. Bosnia and Herzegovina's only access to the sea is a 20-mile strip on the Adriatic coastline. The southern regions, primarily Herzegovina, has a Mediterranean climate with warm summers and cool winters but no extremes in either direction. As one moves north, the weather gets chillier and more consistent with other parts of Europe. Sarajevo, for example, has a pleasant average summertime temperature, but not exactly hot or even warm. But the winters in Sarajevo can get very cold. Most of Bosnia's cities are built in the valleys between the mountains or alongside its rivers. Its capital, Sarajevo, was built in a valley wedged between three mountains. Sarajevo is the largest city, followed by Banja Luka. Sarajevo is located in the east, while Banja Luka is in the west. 
Banja Luka is also the capital of Republika Srpska, the autonomous Serb-controlled entity within Bosnia and Herzegovina. Agriculturally, Bosnia's main produce is corn, along with wheat and barley. The mountainous terrain does not allow for large-scale farms. Most farms in Bosnia are small, family-run operations. Bosnia grows and exports coffee and fruits, however, it must rely on food imports. International Muslim Contributions to the Bosnian War Most of the Muslim world was appalled at the events taking place in Bosnia. Muslims across the globe thought the arms embargo was a grave injustice which prevented the Bosniaks from basic self-defense. Several Muslim nations used diplomacy and cash to help the Bosniaks during the war. But with the embargo in place, they could do very little to help the Bosniaks defend themselves. Saudi Arabia was one of the foremost nations providing aid to Bosnia. King Fahd authorized $8 million in aid in May 1992, as well as tons of relief supplies for Bosnia. The king also sponsored 300 Bosnian refugee families to live in Saudi Arabia for the duration of the conflict. Saudi Arabia sent engineers to Albania to build a refugee camp for displaced Bosniaks. The Saudis also urged the United States to intervene in the conflict. Saudi Arabia has long been suspected of sending volunteer fighters to Bosnia, but they've always denied this allegation. Iran, Saudi Arabia's primary rival in the Middle East, also made a big deal about protecting the Bosnians. In August 1992, Iran offered to send troops to help the Bosnian fighters, but it's not confirmed to have actually happened. However, one journalist reported there were at least a thousand Sunni Iranian fighters in Bosnia. And in September 1992, an Iranian plane bound for Bosnia was found to be carrying weapons. Iran, along with Malaysia, also officially condemned the Bosnian Serbs in September 1992. The Republic of Turkey was another Muslim nation that tried to help the Bosniaks. In fact, since it was a member of NATO, Turkey was one of the few nations able to get military aid into Bosnia. Later in the conflict, when the Bosniaks and Croats began fighting each other, Turkey attempted to mediate between them. Turkish troops made up a significant portion of the UN peacekeeping force sent to Bosnia. And in August 1992, Turkey openly called for airstrikes against the Serb forces. Throughout the conflict, Turkey took in roughly 20,000 Bosnian refugees. The OIC, or Organization of Islamic Cooperation, did what it could to help in Bosnia. The OIC successfully blocked Rump Yugoslavia from joining the United Nations. Rump Yugoslavia was the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, which included the two remaining nations of the former Yugoslavia, Serbia and Montenegro. By July 1993, the OIC was debating sending 17,000 troops into Bosnia. This would have been an interesting development if it ever got off the ground, but it never did. 
As mentioned in the previous episode, thousands of Muslim volunteers, many of them veterans of the Soviet-Afghan war, traveled to Bosnia to assist in the fighting. Pakistan, Malaysia, UAE, Kuwait, and other Muslim nations donated hundreds of millions of dollars in aid and supplies to Bosnia throughout the conflict. And for the entire duration of the war, Muslim nations continued to call on the UN to lift the arms embargo. The War Escalates The first week of April was a terrible time for Bosnia as the Serbs captured Bijeljina and Kupres. Yet, it was only a prelude of the tragedy to come. The Yugoslav army, the JNA, was a full-fledged military. And even though the JNA pretended it was not at war with Bosnia, it shelled, launched airstrikes, and used its intelligence services to support the Bosnian Serbs. In early May 1992, Milosevic conducted a purge of the JNA. All of the older generals who were Tito supporters were forced to retire. The JNA, which was already dominated by Serbs, became an almost 100% Serbian military force. Veliko Kadijevic, a mixed Serb and Croat, was Yugoslavia's Minister of Defense until 1992. As Bosnia prepared to secede, Kadijevic promised President Izetbegovic that he'd do everything possible to prevent war. Whether his intentions were sincere or not, we'll never know. Kadijevic was amongst those purged from the military. The Bosnian Serb militants, many of whom were also enlisted in the JNA, had access to heavy weaponry provided by the JNA. The Bosniaks had to make do with light arms while the Serbs had armored vehicles, tanks, artillery, and much more. And when Bosnia and Herzegovina announced its independence in April 1992, it was the JNA that began shelling Sarajevo from the surrounding hills. In addition to the international arms embargo, the JNA also had the resources to cut off regular supplies like food and medicine from Sarajevo. The Bosniaks and Bosnian Croats were practically defenseless against the Serbs as they carried out the RAM plan. It seems bizarre that the United Nations would deliberately handicap a civilian population in such a manner, especially after footage of the atrocities were televised across the globe. The following quote from writer and historian Taylor Branch may shed some light on why the UN allowed this to happen. This comes from Taylor Branch's 2009 book, The Clinton Tapes, Wrestling History with the President. Clinton said U.S. allies in Europe blocked proposals to adjust or remove the embargo. They justified their opposition on plausible humanitarian grounds, arguing that more arms would only fuel the bloodshed. But privately, said the president, key allies objected that an independent Bosnia would be unnatural as the only Muslim nation in Europe. He said they favored the embargo, precisely because it locked in Bosnia's disadvantage. When I expressed shock at such cynicism, reminiscent of the blind-eye diplomacy regarding the plight of Europe's Jews, François Mitterrand of France had been especially blunt in saying that Bosnia did not belong, and that British officials also spoke of a painful, but realistic, restoration of Christian Europe. Against Britain and France, he said, German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, among others, had supported moves to reconsider the United Nations arms embargo, 
failing in part, because Germany did not hold a seat on the UN Security Council. Sarajevo Most of the journalists covering the war were stationed in Sarajevo at the local Holiday Inn. Facing just as much danger as the civilians, these journalists allowed the world to catch a glimpse of life in the besieged city. Life in Sarajevo had ground to a halt. Municipal services such as heating, water, and electricity were gone. Hospitals, religious buildings, residential buildings, and government buildings stood pockmarked and near collapse. Fires raged uncontrollably throughout the city. Bosniak and Serb militants fought in the streets. Videos of Sarajevo during the month of May 1992 show people running through the streets as shots ring out in the background. The people are dressed in office clothes as if they had gone to work that morning like any other day. The Green Berets, not the American version, was a Bosniak paramilitary group. Many of its members were former Bosniak JNA soldiers. The Bosniak Green Berets drove the Serbs out of some of the major parts of Sarajevo. But the Serbs controlled the surrounding mountains and their artillery attacked the city with impunity. Snipers from both sides took up positions throughout the city, hiding in burned-out buildings overlooking once busy streets. These streets became known as sniper alleys, where anyone, military or civilian, could be shot dead in an instant. The snipers, most of whom were Serb, played games with their targets. They take aim at unexploded shells laying in the street, timing their shots to explode just as a car drove by. Civilians dared not go outdoors except in the early mornings when the mist hanging over the city obscured the sniper's vision. The main sniper alley was a cross street in Sarajevo that contained several sniper nests. Bosniak and Serb snipers targeted each other's soldiers. But it was also dangerous for civilians. This sniper alley was located on the main thoroughfare in Sarajevo, connecting the industrial sector to the historic neighborhoods. Apartment buildings and high-rises lined the street, providing snipers with even more advantageous locations to shoot from. There were also several snipers in the hills surrounding Sarajevo. Hundreds of civilians, including children, just going about their daily business, were killed by snipers. The Serbs also invited Russians into the city to partake in the sniping activities. One interesting story involved a sniper codenamed Arrow. Arrow was 20 years old when the war broke out in 1992. Before that, she, yes, she, was a typical university student studying journalism in Sarajevo. Arrow's father was a policeman, so she grew up around guns. She was also an excellent marksman. When the fighting in Sarajevo began, Arrow used her sniper skills to kill dozens of Serb soldiers. But here's the thing. Arrow was ethnically Serb. But she put her home, Sarajevo, ahead of her nationality. This naturally put a price on her head, and in 1993, she was shot in the back. Arrow wound up in a government hospital where she was treated and eventually recovered. 
The war that Bosnian President Aliyah Izetbegovic was trying to avoid came right to his doorstep. In early May 1992, the JNA kidnapped him from the Sarajevo airport. Then they used him as leverage to ensure safe passage for several of their officers trapped in downtown Sarajevo. Sarajevo was under a devastating siege, but other parts of the country were also in trouble. Serb forces followed the paths of the Drina and Sava rivers. These two rivers ran roughly north and south and formed part of the modern borders of Bosnia. The Serbs captured and ethnically cleansed several cities along these rivers. Three of these cities were Priyador, Kozarec, and Foča. Priyador Before 1992, Priyador, located in western Bosnia, was one of the country's largest cities. Its population was about 112,000, with Muslims holding a slim majority. When the fighting began, Serb nationalists overthrew the local Bosnian authorities and claimed the town for Republika Srpska. Future war criminal Milan Kovacevic, a trained anesthesiologist, became the city's ruler. Kovacevic oversaw the removal and cleansing of Muslims from Priyador. He was also responsible for the notorious concentration camps near Priyador, where many Bosniaks wound up. 3,500 Bosniaks and 180 Croats were killed in Priyador. 45,000 were expelled. Kozarec After Priyador, the Serbs began shelling Kozarec about six miles away. After several hours, the Serbs stopped shelling and announced over loudspeaker that the residents would not be hurt if they came out of their homes and surrendered. Once the people were outside and exposed, the Serb artillery opened up again, killing and maiming hundreds in a few seconds. The survivors ran back into their homes and the shelling continued for another two days. Finally, with the help of local Serb citizens, the Bosnian Serb military went door to door arresting the distinguished Muslims in the city. This included judges, policemen, doctors, politicians, and businessmen. These Muslims were brought out into the open where Serb snipers shot some of them. Others had their throats slit, but most were simply machine-gunned to death. Kozarec was not simply ethnic cleansing. The Serbs had control of the town and could have easily expelled the mostly unarmed Muslim population. This was a systematic attempt to destroy Muslim society in Kozarec forever. At least 2,500 Muslims were killed in Kozarec. Foča Located in southeast Bosnia, Foča was another predominantly Muslim city, unlucky enough to lay within territory the Serbs wanted. The Serbs attacked Foča in August 1992 on St. Elijah's Day, a major Orthodox Christian holiday. Some of the worst crimes against humanity took place in Foča, which is saying a lot considering all the things that happened during this war. Several war criminals earned their prison sentences in Foča. As usual, once they had control of the town, the Serbs went door to door and house to house. The Muslims and Croats of the town were gathered, separated by gender, and sent to separate concentration camps. Muslim neighborhoods were destroyed. 
all of Focha's mosques were destroyed. Even the Elijah Mosque, built during the Ottoman era in 1549 and an international cultural heritage site, was blown up and razed to the ground by the Serbs. One story described a Muslim man who was killed, then nailed to a mosque door similar to how Jesus is often depicted on the cross. And then there were the rapes. The Serbs turned a local Foča residence into a rape center. Officially, it was a detention center for Bosniak women and girls. But the detainees became sex slaves to Nido Samarjic, a Serb military commander. Girls as young as 14 were systematically and repeatedly raped by Nito and his soldiers. It is not clear how many women were raped in Foča. However, some estimates put the number at around 20,000. A Bosniak woman named Munevera gave an interview discussing what she witnessed when the Serbs captured Foča in the summer of 1992. Munevera told a story about her 17-year-old neighbor. The young girl was dragged away by the Serbs, then brought back a few days later and dumped in the street. The girl was bleeding, having been raped numerous times since her kidnapping. She died a few days later. Finally, Munevera said, she, her husband, and their two little girls escaped Focha on foot. They walked 45 miles, mostly through woods and snow, to avoid Serb patrols along the road. 2,700 Bosniaks were killed in Foča. 21,000 were expelled. More fighting in May 600 Bosniaks were killed in Zvornach in northern Bosnia. 40,000 were expelled. 320 Bosniaks and 80 Croats were killed in Doboj in central Bosnia. 40,000 were expelled. Many of those expelled from their homes wound up in either the Ternopolje, Karacharm, or Omarska concentration camps. We'll discuss some of these camps in the next episode. All of this happened just in the month of May. 15,000 Bosniaks were killed within a few weeks of declaring independence. The Bosniaks did fight back. The embargo put them at a severe disadvantage, but they did the best they could with what they had. A joint Bosniak-Croat offensive reversed Serb gains in Posavina, located in North Bosnia close to the Croatian border. The combined Bosniak-Croat force retook land in central Bosnia, then worked their way southwards before putting Doboj under siege. This allowed them to cut off Bozanska Krajina in the east from Simbaria and Serbia in the west. Nasser Oric was a Bosniak who had joined the Yugoslav security forces in the late 1980s, eventually becoming a bodyguard for Slobodan Milosevic. In the early 90s, Nasser Oric realized things were going to get bad as Milosevic cranked up his nationalist rhetoric. He left the security force to assist Bosnia in the war. He soon commanded his own squadron of fighters. The city of Srebrenica is located in a shallow valley in East Bosnia just a few miles from the Serbian border. Being so close to the border, the Bosnian Serbs targeted Srebrenica to be part of Greater Serbia. The Serbs occupied Srebrenica early on in the fighting, but Nasser Oric and his fighters retook the city in mid-May. Despite these gains, the Serbs still had the upper hand in Sarajevo. 
and they still had their artillery in the mountains. In mid-May, the Serbs launched rockets at a Red Cross convoy bringing supplies into the city. The Bosnian Serbs also hijacked Red Cross and other relief agency vehicles attempting to bring relief to Sarajevo. These attacks forced the Red Cross to suspend operations in Bosnia. On May 24, 1992, two days after Bosnia and Herzegovina was admitted to the United Nations, Bosnian Serb commander Radko Mladic intensified the shelling of Sarajevo. No longer concerned about hitting legitimate targets, the Serbs began indiscriminate bombardment of Bosnia's capital city. Russia's foreign minister visited Sarajevo and negotiated a temporary ceasefire. This allowed civilians, many of whom had been hunkered in their basements for weeks, to get whatever food and supplies they could. Three days later, mortar shells killed 16 people waiting in line to buy bread. Emergency personnel raced to help the injured, but sniper fire forced them to turn back. Television cameras broadcast the carnage across the globe. Horrified at the killing, the United Nations imposed sanctions on Yugoslavia on May 30th. The sanctions were severe. Serbia could not access oil or trade with other nations. Its foreign assets were frozen. Its airport was shut down, and the threat of military intervention loomed. Greece was the only nation that continued to conduct limited business with Serbia. President George Bush insisted American troops would not be sent to the Balkans. Concerned about the close numbers in an election year, President Bush did not see the need for U.S. military intervention. We are not the world's policemen, he said to reporters. We are concerned about the situation in Yugoslavia, but there is no commitment on that. The U.S. Congress had other ideas. Fresh off its victory in Iraq, the American people liked the idea of being the world's sole remaining superpower. Perhaps the U.S. could be the world's policeman. Of course, this sentiment would change the following year after a failed humanitarian mission to Somalia. But for now, congressional Democrats and Republicans wanted the president to do more about Yugoslavia. The Serbian people wanted more from their president also. Thousands of Serbs demonstrated in the streets of Belgrade, angry with Milosevic for perpetuating the war and turning their nation into a pariah. But Milosevic was defiant. He criticized the United States and Russia for supporting the sanctions and defended his own support of the rebel Bosnian Serbs based in Pali. This is the price we have to pay he said, because we're helping Serbs outside of Serbia. Out west, Croatian forces, which included HVO and HV, captured Derventa in North Bosnia. This cut off Serb territory in western Bosnia from Serb territory in eastern Bosnia. HVO, or Hrvatsko Vjecik Obrani, as you may remember, was the Bosnian-Croatian military forces. HV, or Hrvatska Vojska, was the Croatian Republic's military. The VRS, or the Bosnian Serb Army, responded to the loss of Derventa by launching Operation Corridor against the Croats. Operation Corridor focused on Bozanska Posavina in the northern region of Bosnia near the Croatian border. 
Lasting from late June to early October 1992, the operation's purpose was to reestablish the link between Banja Luka in the west and Bosnian Serb territory in the east. The Serbs recaptured Deventa, chased the Croats north, and captured everything along the way. Once the Serbs reached the Sava River, the border between Serbia and Croatia, they destroyed the bridge crossing over it. Bosniaks and Croats In Bosnia, tensions were growing between the Bosniaks and their Croatian allies. Throughout the spring of 1992, there had been several clashes between the two groups, sometimes leading to gunfire. By the autumn of 1992, these tensions turned to all-out war between Bosniaks and Croats. Much of the conflict took place in the south in Herzegovina. This area is home to a large population of Croats and also borders the southern sweep of the Croatian Republic. While Bosniaks and Croats were fighting together against the Serbs in the north, the situation was much different in the south. The Bosnian Croats in this region wanted to be part of Croatia and were doing everything in their power to start a conflict with the Bosniaks. In May 1992, Bosnian Croats demanded Muslims in the central Bosnian city of Kriseliak join the Croatian forces. The Bosnian Croats also began disbanding Bosnian government institutions in the areas they controlled. The following month, Bosnian Croats declared only Croatian currency could be used in their territories. And by July 1992, the HVO became the de facto government in Vares and other Croat-controlled cities. There are some who believe Croatian President Franjo Tudjeman and Slobodan Milosevic had a secret agreement to divide Bosnia. Certainly, Bosnian President Alija Izetbegovic stated as much in later interviews. Others say this idea is a fantasy and that Croatia did not want war with Bosnia, but circumstances made it inevitable. Franjo Tudjeman and Slobodan Milosevic were not necessarily enemies. In fact, some scholars say Franjo Tudjman believed Milosevic could be reasoned with. Both men held similar nationalist ideologies. Both men also believed the division of Bosnia between Croatia and Serbia was inevitable. Both men also believed the Bosnian Muslims were weak. And both men would turn out to be wrong. The Bosnian government, such as it was in 1992, was stretched to the limit. They were defending a 600-mile-long front line with limited weapons and communications against a superior force. With its attention focused on Sarajevo in the north, Bosnia neglected the south. It simply did not have the resources to do much in Herzegovina. But this neglect allowed the Bosnian Croats to take charge. According to President Franjo Tudjman, Croatia sent troops and weapons into southern Bosnia to protect Bosnian Croats. In actuality, the Croats had turned on the Bosniaks. And now, the Bosnian Muslims were fighting a two-front war against two different enemies with more resources and better weapons. When Croatia declared independence from Yugoslavia, thousands of Muslims joined their army to fight against the Serbs. Now, 
the Croatian army arrested and imprisoned those Muslim Bosnians who had joined their ranks. News footage from the time showed Muslim Bosnian prisoners, all men, malnourished and emaciated in the Croatian prison camps. The Croats advanced on Mostar, about 40 miles south of Sarajevo. With only light arms, the Bosniaks put up a stubborn defense of the city. Unable to dislodge the Bosniak defenders, the Croats took their frustrations out on the Mostar Bridge. This ancient bridge was built during the Ottoman era and was nearly 500 years old. In the next episode, we'll discuss the role the United Nations played in the Bosnian conflict. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, iPhone, iPad, iPod, or any Mac computer, open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you use Android, Windows, or any non-Apple device, visit patreon.com slash Islamic History. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium shows. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Saroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season one of the Umayyad Caliphate, presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 1-10. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Muhalab was leading, was leading the fight against the Azadika Khawarij in southern Persia. The Azadika had a strong foothold in the Zagros Mountains of Persia, and it was difficult for Muhalab to dislodge them. Shabib ibn Yazid and his Khawarij band had run rampant through Iraq for over a year. During this rampage, they attacked Madain in 76 AH and threatened the city again in 77 AH when Mutarif ibn Murida ibn Shu'ba was the governor. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf finally, de- finally defeated Shabib's forces at Kufa, and Shabib died a short time later. And so with that, let's discuss Mutarif's rebellion. We first discussed Mutarif back in episode number 7. He was the temporary governor of Madain when Shabib ibn Yazid, the leader of one of the Khawarij bands in Iraq, came down from the mountains with 1,000 men. Mutarif, who was the son of the companion Murida ibn Shu'ba, had met with some of Shabib's representatives while the two armies were separated by a river. 
When it became clear that Mutaref was not going to join his cause, Shabib left Mutaref behind and went to face the army from Kufa, which was being led by another man named Atab ibn Waraka. As mentioned, Mutaref was the son of the companion Murira ibn Shu'ba, therefore he was from the Thaqif tribe, just like Murira ibn Shu'ba and his boss, basically, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. Murida ibn Shu'ba, as we mentioned in earlier episodes, and most of his family, in fact, were supporters, big supporters of the Umayyad clan. However, Mutaref, the current governor of Madain, had always secretly opposed the Umayyad government. During his brief meeting with the Khawarij band associated with Shabib ibn Yazid, Mutaref implied that he might be willing to join forces with them against the Umayyad government. Mutaref suggested that he join with the Khawarij, with Shabib ibn Yazid and his Khawarij, to overthrow the Umayyads, and together they could choose a new caliph through a council similar to the one that Omar ibn Khattab set up just before he died. However, Shabib and the Khawarij rejected this idea, and this is what ultimately led them to break off talks with Mutarif and go to Kufa, where Shabib was eventually and inevitably defeated by Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. However, while the two people, while the two uh, representatives were discussing these, this potential collaboration with Mutarif, the other people in Mutarif's camps heard these negotiations, and they heard him making these suggestions to Shabib's representatives. So Mutaref's advisors warned him that eventually this was going to get back to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, and he'd be in trouble once the governor found out. Mutaref acknowledged that they were telling the truth, and he knew he would be punished by Hajjaj, so he decided to take this opportunity to rebel against Hajjaj ibn Yusuf and against the Umayyads, whom he really couldn't stand anyway. So Mutarif called three of his closest military advisors and told them of his plan. Now they all agreed to support him, but two of his advisors actually slipped out in the middle of the night and returned to Kufa where they dropped the dime on him to Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. So Mutarif and his remaining supporters, they left Madain and, head, and headed for the Zagros Mountains, which lies between, it's really in, mostly in Iran, but it lies on the border between Iran and Iraq. Along the way, Mutarif joined with some of the former supporters of Ibn Zubair, and they joined him as well, giving Mutarif roughly a total number of about 300 men. Meanwhile, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf had finally defeated Shabib, and by the time he learned about the rebellion, he was ready, ready to start sending out detachments to catch up with Mutarif and stop his activities. <laughs> 